0: And above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the Ageless Wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles. Serving all of Southern California from Santa Barbara to San Diego and streaming for the world at KPFK.org. We also podcast and even post to YouTube, but anytime you can join us live on Tuesdays at one o'clock, that makes us really happy. We feel like there's a group mind. We sort of, sort of. Maybe it's our imagination, but I sort of feel you out there. So, <laughs> thanks for for being with us, whether uh, via the radio, old school FM radio, or uh, live streaming on the internet. Got a great guest for you today. We're going to talk about magic, and I mean real magic, not stage magic. Is there such a thing? Mysticism and. And, and metaphysics we will dabble in the occult a little bit and maybe even explore secret societies with a real expert a gentleman that I interviewed on this very radio station about, hard to believe, 15 years ago, I think. So that's coming up. But I, before we go to Mitch, I want to take just a couple of minutes to remind you that we're in our fun drive and we need your help. We need your support. I know you enjoy listening to this radio station. You're doing it now. And it's pretty obvious that we're a non-commercial radio station. Isn't that great not to be done 16 minutes out of every hour with commercial announcements that insult your intelligence and befuddle your mind? Also, I feel it's important to mention that That also means that as a host, I'm free from any kind of corporate influence or editorial control. I don't have to worry about some executive telling me what I should say, how I should say it, what I should avoid, and uh, threatening me with being fired if I don't toe the line. We're really free. Every one of us is absolutely responsible for our content. And we conform to the mission of the Pacifica Group and KPFK. And that's progressive, non-commercial, listener-sponsored radio. You are a member of the KPFK family when you make a pledge, a contribution or a donation. Because we're a nonprofit, it's also tax deductible. So what do you got to lose for ten, fifteen, twenty dollars a month? You can enjoy all the benefits of knowing you're part of this family, and you are making a difference. You know that frustration of what can I do? I'd love to change the world, but I'm just one person. You can support this radio station that brings on great guests with practical information about what needs to change, how it needs to change, and what you can do about it. You can be the underwriter so we don't have to go to the corporation's the phone room is a little clunky because of COVID. We've had to outsource it. You could call 818 and if you're a patient person, you can make your pledge. I encourage you, however, to just go to our website at kpfk.org and look for Sustainer's Circle. That's the best way to make a monthly pledge of $15 or $20 or more. And yeah, there's some great thank you gifts and, and premiums, but that's not why you do it. And however much you're able to contribute, that's of less consequence than the fact that you are making a contribution. So whatever amount, $5 a month, we'll be happy, we'll be happy. Uh, but if you can donate 50 a month, uh, if you're doing well, it's good karma and uh, it'll keep the lights down. So... Thank you for that. KPFK.org. And uh, I'll touch on this again at the end of the show. But I'm anxious to talk to my guest today. From New York City, somewhere deep in the Big Apple, Mitch Horowitz, who is a historian and author. He writes, he speaks. Maybe you've seen him on Ancient Aliens on TV. On Metaphysics and Magic and Mysticism on the Occult. What's that term you used? Alternative spirituality, Mitch?
1: Hi, Michael. Alternative spirituality, metaphysics, might be a broader term to use. Uh, I write about metaphysics in history, in practice. That's my passion.
0: Yeah, passion indeed. Mine too. Uh, Nice to see you. Thanks for being with us again. How'd you get into this field? How far back? uh,
1: When did you first realize that this was an interest for you? It started when I was a little kid growing up in the great borough of Queens in New York City. I was probably around nine years old. I would take out every book I could find from the local public library on mythology and folk beliefs, astrology, the paranormal. I remember the book club at my school offering paperbacks on flying saucers and Bigfoot and my older sister coming home with the paperback books of Carlos Castaneda. And I I very deeply wanted to know where all this came from. And it struck me as extraordinary at age nine, it still does today, that uh, you look at astrology, for example, and whatever an individual makes of the modern practice of astrology. Here is this esoteric philosophy going back to ancient Mesopotamia. It's, of course, traveled a jagged and interrupted path. The astrology that reaches us today is very different and has been reprocessed in a, a novel form compared to what it was that the ancients were working with. But nonetheless, you'd be hard-pressed to find a single person in modern life today who couldn't tell you what his or her sun sign was and something about its attributes. And it's extraordinary to me that vestiges of these ancient philosophies have reached us. And even as a little kid, I wanted to know where did it all come from? How did it reach Queens? Why was I watching a robed astrologer on television with Merv Griffin or Mike Douglas or one of the talk shows that used to focus on New Age topics, which I missed terribly? And so I was interested as a kid, and I had the good fortune uh, entering adulthood to eventually find my way into the New Age publishing world, and I found my way to writing about these figures who were so fascinating to me. I suspected that was your story. It's
0: it's really mine, too. I bought my first book on hypnosis with a coupon from a Superman comic book when I was 12 years old. And I had seen, uh, I'm going to really date myself here. I had seen a hypnotist on a TV show called Art Linkletter's House Party (laughs) in what must have been 59 or 60 or 61, somewhere in there. And I thought, hypnosis, my God. And it wasn't cluck like a chicken. It was pretty impressive. And then by college, I was reading trance mediums, uh, you know, the Edgar Cayce and Jane Roberts stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, like you, I just got hooked. I thought, what could be more fascinating? So throughout my life, one of the things uh, in this field that has most interested me is that unlike religion, where old books are studied, we find ourselves in the metaphysical and mystical fields stimulated by the study of books. But there's an emphasis on the personal experience. And we see this in all cultures, even cultures that, you know, were so separate that they didn't run into each other until Mm -hmm. the last few hundred years. And still we see this continuity of belief. Uh, Speak to me about this consensus that arrives through meditation and contemplation that a lot of this material, we just tend to become aware of or our understanding expands as we reflect on it
1: well it's interesting what you're referencing you call it the ageless wisdom it seems to me that when people from different cultures different places of geography different stretches of history come around to similar ideas for example like Prophetic dreams or crisis apparitions or some kind of clairvoyancy when you're in a meditative state. If you trace these kinds of attitudes throughout human history as much as we're capable of following it, you find this record extending to time immemorial to different cultures separated by vast differences in commerce, language, custom from Polynesia to Siberia all of whom come around to certain basic core beliefs. One of those basic core beliefs for example is that thoughts have some sort of causative strain that what we think about all day long out pictures an experience in more than just a psychological or motor functioning way. And this becomes a record. This becomes a record. Sometimes this stuff is dismissed as anecdote but what is anecdote other than a chain of testimony, if it's consistent and if it occurs across history. So I'm very interested in these areas where uh, people from vastly different stretches of custom culture, language, time, talk about similar intimate experiences. Exactly.
0: And while it's such an all-encompassing field, I mean, there's nothing that the study of consciousness does not include or, or, or embrace there is this continuity there is this thread and i think you've just touched on one of the major strands and that's this idea that consciousness is magnetic that energy or spirit follows thought and this is this is magic really this is the real magic i think sometimes uh, to differentiate it from stage magic we we see it spelled with a ck rather than nice. just to just see but um, let me put it to you this way. Is magic,
1: with a CK, is it real? I believe it is at this point in my search, at this point in my life. Uh, it, it is frustratingly difficult to control, predict, orderly arrange. But it seems to me that all ceremony, prayer, rite, ritual is directed towards the Harnessing of say the selective powers of thought some people say manifest for various reasons I say Select it seems to me that it's entirely possible that our five senses are tools of measurement And in a certain sense, what are they other than an organic technology of measurement taste touch sight smell and so forth and It's possible it's possible and I say this after many years of of seeking and considering and comparing experiences from across human life, that we use our senses as tools of localization, as tools that gain perspective on and select things into our reality. That doesn't mean it's the only game in town. That doesn't mean there aren't other laws and forces that we live under or limitations that we face within this physical sphere. If I was to get up from my studio and stub my toe, I would experience pain. And if there was one instant in my life where I didn't experience pain, that would stand out as one of the extraordinary experiences in my life where I gained a glimpse of some other reality. And I think that other reality exists. And I think it's conditioned by a lot that's around us. But it seems to me that humanity has always had this rough but very steady instinct that thoughts are causative, thoughts are selective, and that they play some role in what enters our experience and that's what i consider to be magic seems to me that thoughts
0: are an energy and that emotions play a role too they they seem to act like
1: the force that drives the energy yes in fact i i always caution people and caution myself not to get too caught up with using the term thought because intellectual expression is just one mode of our existence we have emotions. We have a body. We have an intellect. I frequently speak in terms of the psyche, which I, I see as a compact of thought and emotion. Uh, emotions are very often what's in the driver's seat. And marrying emotion to thought is a challenge for seekers. And when one finds oneself in a situation where emotion is married to thought, maybe you're feeling a certain sense of euphoria, or you're feeling you're in exactly the right company, or you're doing exactly the right chore or task with yourself at a given moment, I would say use that. That could be a very powerful time to engage in a visualization, an affirmation, a prayer, a mantra. That could be prime time in a sense for enacting the selective energies of thought. That's been my experience. Let's go a little deeper. Behind thought and feeling,
0: there is, it seems to me, intention, attention, and
1: awareness. Mm-hmm. How does that work? I've always felt it strikes me that a deeply impassioned focus and intention is part of the, a rough bargain, I would say, a rough bargain, but a wonderful bargain that life strikes with us. It seems to me that concentration on a certain point, as in nature, so in the psyche, produces force, produces energy, and... It's been my experience working with some of this mind metaphysics material that no single factor is more powerful than the individual choosing a really, really profound exclusive life focus. And some people want to argue with that, and understandably so, because life requires so much of us. We have to be caregivers, parents, workers, artists, whatever. Life requires an enormous range of roles from us. And I respect that, and I bow to that, and I understand it. I'm a parent myself, but at the same time, I feel very strongly that the tough bargain that life strikes with us is that if we can focus on what we want with an absolute exclusive precision, that taps the energies of the psyche like nothing else I've experienced.
0: Now, this brings up what for me is a really big question. These are obviously maybe not obviously, obvious to me anyway, these are spiritual laws, this mm-hmm. law of attraction or energy follows thought or the secret or however you want to refer to it. Should we be using spiritual laws to manifest cars and houses and relationships and jewelry and material stuff? So there seems to be something gross about that.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think about that a lot. For me, spiritual simply means extra physical. Uh, I, I believe that we participate in a life that's both material and temporal and that's unseen. And yet the unseen experience makes itself felt in our lives. I, Michael, here's my point of view. I believe that the sensitive individual, the mature individual is capable of, of identifying what is needed in his or her life. And I think that that gets taken away from us a lot of the time. Uh, It's true. We do live in a very somewhat licentious consumer-driven society. I don't know that there's any way around that. Commerce is part of the human story. Uh, We've certainly hypercharged it in our world. I don't know that that's a bad thing. I think that the individual... Can probably identify something that meets a need in his or her life and at this point in my search I've stopped making a distinction between material and immaterial attachment non-attachment identification non-identification personality essence I think it's all one life and I think the individual finds circumstances where he and she needs something could be any number of things could be a car and that might be meaningful for a variety of reasons to that individual. So I I tend to bow to that and I tend to honor that.
0: Well, that makes sense. I think that's well said. Uh, But the follow-up has to be, um, until what point? When is enough enough? At what point does materialism become corrupting?
1: Well, it seems to me that the greatest joy I've received in life has been through self-expression. For example, what we're doing right now speaking at an interview or writing a book or presenting somewhere, there is no particular time in my life where I feel more at ease, more at home in myself than when I'm doing that. So I have identified that as a very key facet of my existence, key facet to my happiness. And I think in one form or another, I can't fathom that my life is radically different from anybody else's. I think in one form or another, self-expression plays A major role in people's lives, although that could take vastly different forms. For some people, that's athletics. For some people, that's some sort of artistic pursuit. For some people that might be starting a business, whatever it is, I think self-expression is innate to the human situation, as above, so below, as we were created so that we wish to create. It seems to me that gross consumption, gross consumption or addiction is probably a salve for a, a lack of self-expression. I think when a person feels a lack of self-expression, that's probably when the booze, the gambling, the debt spending, all this stuff starts to get out of control.
0: Yeah. I often think of that phrase. I <laughs> Sometime I should figure out where it comes from. The benefit of learning to live in the world, but not of it. Cause we do have to live in it. Mm-hmm. We, we, we have bills to pay. Yes. Right, so I need a car, but I don't need a Ferrari.
1: Well, it's an interesting question. I, I don't, I don't own a car myself. But you're uh, in New York. <laughs> t- I'm in New York, right? It's it's anathema to have a car. I tend towards pretty simple tastes, but I could understand that if an individual grew up in want and maybe has all kinds of difficult associations with what it was like to arrive at school and is dressed in a certain way. Presented in a certain way, regarded in a certain way, talked about in a certain way, that person perhaps, without ever articulating it, might feel that having a beautiful car is something that he or she yearns to express. So, in that sense, I, I can understand it. You know, I, I, I'm trying to grok to the way in which I might make value judgments about another person's wishes on the path, but. I don't know that my value judgments are any better. I remember one time I was in the nation of Belize, very beautiful English speaking nation in Central America. And we were staying at this jungle lodge up in the hills. And we were there in this jungle lodge for a few days. And it was kind of hippie-ish and, you know, everything was reggae and hacky sack and that kind of thing. And I fit in, I had a good time. And then we left and we traveled to this more buttoned up beach resort. where It was Volvos and golf carts and guys wearing polo shirts and stuff like that. And the moment we pulled up, I had this reaction against it where I was like, oh, hey, you know, this is too straight. This is too square. I want to be back at the Jungle Lodge. Ironically, the Jungle Lodge, the Eco Lodge, was more expensive than the beach resort. But that being set aside, here I was at the beach resort. And I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. How do I know that any of those values or styles or fashions or expressions that I left behind at the Eco Jungle Lodge with Bob Marley playing and everything is any more authentic than what I'm experiencing here, where there's a dude with a Volvo, you know, who's concerned about his tea time. Now, I'm not a golf player, and I don't drive a Volvo, but and I don't look at either. But at the same time, who am I to say that his choices are somehow of a more slender or lesser variety than whatever choices I thought were reflected in the other place? So sometimes I think we we look at our cultural milieu and we feel like, well, you know, that's more authentic. Whereas the other person, who might not be as as uh, prone to publicly explore it, you know, has the same depth of need or or, or feeling behind whatever his or her choices are. Well, I have gotta hand it to you. That's a
0: very in. You know what I like about your take on that is how non-binary it is. It's uh, you're really walking the middle way, and to see even excessive materialism as a matter of self-expression rather than some sort of acquisition that'll make you happy. That's very that's very smart. I like that a lot. It begs the question, is there such a thing as black magic? And I'm going to take a short break and come back and give you a chance to answer that. Mitch Horowitz is my guest today on KPFK. This is The Mystery School, and we'll be right back. Stay right. Let me tell you a story.
1: On June 23rd, 1967, the LAPD beat anti-war demonstrators bloody. Only one radio station in the Southland covered the beatings, KPFK. And that was the day a young kid in Pacoima broke open his piggy bank and joined KPFK. This is Greg Palace. I was that kid, and for 55 years, I've been a member of KPFK and Pacifica stations. Why? Because the courageous reporting continues. And when other media covers up the news, KPFK uncovers it. Won't you join me? This is Greg Palace asking you to go to kpfk.org. Have you got one of those telephone things? 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. This is Greg
0: Palace. 90.7 FM is KPFK for all of Southern California, streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Mitch Horowitz is my guest today. He's an author. Maybe you've seen him on the Ancient Alien Show. He's a real expert in the field of, uh, it's sort of a contradiction in terms, but sometimes I say secular spirituality. <laughs> um, you know, spiritual but not religious is the way a lot of people talk about it. Uh, Mitch calls it alternative spirituality, and it's a, it's a huge field really centering on the nature of consciousness and awareness, and that's what this program is about. We've been talking about the secret, the law of manifestation, the idea that energy follows thought, the fact that this is found in all cultures going back to the beginning of time, and that uh, a few hundred years ago, as we began to sail around the world and meet each other, We had this pre-religious or non-religious idea of how the world worked, that uh, the shamans and the mystics and the medicine men and women had sort of intuited. And it's really fascinating to compare and contrast all of these fields, though it's a bit daunting. We've been talking about it as magic with a CK rather than, you know, stage magic and uh, stage hypnosis and, and that type of thing. And the question that uh, that I posed just before the break, Mitch, is there then such a thing as black magic?
1: Mm. Well, I have on occasion been accused of practicing black magic myself, so I guess I have a sort of selfish stake in responding <laughs> to that question. I, I I truly do not think in terms of black and white magic first of all without getting too deep into etymology it's possible that the term black magic in its earliest uses in late antiquity or the medieval era it's possible that it referred back to ancient egypt which used to refer to itself as uh, kemet or the black land black because it was fertile black because the nile would 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 inundate the mud of the surrounding region and create very fertile beautiful lands. so in that sense if black magic in its original etymology can be traced back to an antecedent in terms of how ancient Egypt referred to itself, I view that as a very noble title, although I realize colloquially that's not how people are using it today. People generally use black magic colloquially to connote something self-seeking, maybe self-sabotaging. Evil. Evil. And because my outlook accommodates acquisitiveness or attainment, I should say. Um, I guess some people conflate what I'm saying with black magic, and I would say we need to just take a sledgehammer to those definitions, black magic, white magic. Again, I, I feel that what is needed in the life of the individual is highly personal, intimate, and I think that the mature or sensitive individual is capable of identifying that need without necessarily having to be classified in a certain way. I think too much of that has gone on in our world. And I suppose if I have an ethical guardrail, if I have a, a code that I live by on the path, it really just comes down to reciprocity or what some people might call karma. But I do think that there is a human wholeness of some kind. I do think that we all participate in some sort of a unified field or noose or a a wholeness or call it whatever you wish. Noose was a, a term for an overmind that the ancient Greeks used to use. Hence, I do think there's a human wholeness. And I do believe in reciprocity and I would never do anything that would knowingly that would disrupt another person's reach for his or her own potential in the same way that I wish to develop my own potential. So if I do anything that dehumanizes another person or that seeks to exact a price from another person, whereas I might not have perspective into that individual's life, then I'm probably violating reciprocity, which I assume results in some kind of a payment that has to be made by me. So I do take the Code of Reciprocity very, very seriously. Other than that, I have no definitions of magic that exclude anything.
0: I think that's a pretty healthy view. Uh, Few institutions are as binary as religious institutions. Uh, I think that's where a lot of this comes from. Um, I remember hearing Muhammad Ali years and years ago, 40 years ago, talking about how white cake is called angel food and chocolate cake is devil's food. <laughs>
1: that's our world.
0: <laughs> and so the idea that anything that's different is opposite. Yeah. you know, I call this the either or mentality, but yeah. it's also all or nothing mentality. It's absolutism. Yes. And uh, it's part of a conservative reactionary philosophy that not only are some things absolute, but all things are absolute. I'll concede that some things are absolute, but there's also the, well, in Buddhism, they call it the two-truth doctrine. There is relative truth. You know, I, I find it warm in this room, and you're sort of chilly, and uh, it, it's not that one of us is wrong about that. mm mm-hmm. So we struggle with that. And this brings us then to this word occult, which really means hidden. And if you're going to be persecuted for your beliefs, maybe
1: that's a a good reason to hide it. Yeah, occult is simply a word that came into English language usage during the Renaissance. It was a, a Latin word, occultus or occulta, that meant unseen, hidden. It was a term that translators and clerics and religious scholars used to refer to the ancient pre-Christian traditions of what to them was a bygone world, Rome, Egypt, uh, parts of ancient Persia, Greece. They were trying to refer to these religious traditions that were being rediscovered during the Renaissance, and they had no way to refer to them. The temple orders were gone, the priesthoods were gone, the early medieval period swept away. What had been familiar in terms of the ancient civilizations so they use the term occult or hidden or unseen. It's a term I've retained to this day because I think it has historical integrity. It certainly doesn't mean anything sinister. I try to use these words as they were used by the people who originally adopted them. And so it's it's one of many such words I've hung on to. Well, you know, going back to the
0: 1800s when Blavatsky formed a Theosophical Society or even before that, the emergence of the New Thought Movement and what later... More recently, it came to be called for a while the New Age Movement or Human Potential. Uh, really, fundamentalist Christians have always referred to this as satanic and evil uh, because it's not Christ-centered. I wonder what Jesus would have to say about that.
1: It's funny. you know, This kind of aligns with what you were saying earlier, you know, with respect to Muhammad Ali's observation about how we refer to cake. What is it? uh, Angel food cake, devil's cake. We in the Western world, and your listeners in the East, because there's probably some folks listening digitally who are are outside the, the Western world, but we in the Western world, for centuries and centuries and centuries, have been conditioned to this idea that Something called God or the heavens is above, and something called Hades or the underworld or that which is evil is below. And we think in terms of this absolute scale of goodness and evil that's as evident and as plain to us as concepts of up and down. And yet, concepts of up and down are themselves completely conceptual. If you asked me to point up right now, I'd be pointing in a direction that to one of your listeners in New Zealand or Australia or Papua New Guinea would be down. There is no such thing as up and down. It's conceptual. We need it to get through life. We need it to, to have a sense of linearity, a sense of orderly progression. We as five sensory beings need certain guardrails that allow us to get through existence. But it's important to recall, to note that these things are conceptual. They're consensus-based concepts of reality that we have agreed to as a way of getting through life, just like the numbers or the hands on a clock. And they might correspond with certain cycles of nature, but they're not absolute. They're a code, they're a language, they're a device. And I would say the same thing is true of our religious conceptions. We have no idea how this unseen world works. If there is an unseen world, and I think we have overwhelming evidence that there is, both in terms of experiences and in terms of what we're learning in some of the sciences, quantum theory, academic, psychical research, certain models of reality like string theory might help us understand things about the invisible world. And of course, the testimony of seekers across millennia, which we're all a part of that said, we have no idea what the territory is. We have no idea how it works. We have a very hard time thinking outside of concepts of linearity, concepts of past, present, future, even if we learn that we know for a fact that time bends, for example, in extreme conditions. Time bends at extreme velocities. Time bends in conditions of extreme gravity. Much as I know this, you and I have a date. We have an interview time set up. I have to be there for it. I can't say to you, well, Michael, there's no such thing as linearity. It doesn't work. We can't function. But intellectually, we know, we know that that time is relative, that time is conditional. So I guess all I'm really trying to say is that the certainties that we have of divisions between what might be called Jehovah and Satan or Christ and whatever, you know, the the, the demonic realm, all these things are, in my estimation, they are concepts. They are consensually agreed upon points of reference that we use to try to navigate experience. We don't know anything about the other world. And I put a tremendous premium on the individual experience because at the end of the day, I think that's all we have. Yeah, we still talk about the sunrise and the sunset, though we know better. Right. right. To our friends around the world right now, you know, they're experiencing something completely different, and their experience is accurate. Yeah, well, even though we know the Earth is spinning on its axis,
0: it's not the sun that's rising. We still colloquially, if that's the right yeah. word, uh, refer to the sunset, yep. a beautiful sunset. Oh, look at the sun setting in the, Oh, look the sun rising in the east. No, it's not. Right. Although, I, I I saw a survey not long ago that said some something like thirty percent of Americans do believe the sun revolves around the Earth. So, <laughs> that's a there are scary.
1: days where I'm relieved it's only thirty percent. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and not the majority. Like, like I'm very I'm very warmed by that. So.
0: I wish there was more information and conversation mm-hmm. around the paradoxes of binaryism, yeah. if I can call it that. And, and bifurcation and absolutism. I remember reading some middle aged uh, medieval perhaps philosopher who pointed out that an uphill road is also going downhill in the very same place and i can imagine two people uh, standing beside that road arguing about whether the road is going uphill or downhill
1: that is the perfect zen story if ever there was one (laughs) what you just described yeah Yeah, so
0: opposites it's like that old spy versus spy cartoon in mad magazine Uh, opposites have more in common than (laughs) than we might imagine they're really
1: polarities aren't they yeah it's fascinating everything is a polarity you know i was looking at a photograph today on the front page of the new york times website and it showed an older couple from ukraine being uh, reunited i think it was in poland they were in an area that was safe for refugees and they were being reunited and i must have looked at this photo five different times, and each time I looked at it, for an instant, for an instant, I thought the couple was engaged in some act of struggle or violence, whereas they weren't. They were crying uh, tears of relief, tears of joy, and they were reaching out for one another to embrace one another, but the intimate embrace and the act of friction are such a, a, a... opposing polarities, yet part of the same sliding scale that the facial expressions and even the bodily movements, if you look at it for just an instant, emotionally seem to communicate the same thing. Although we say they're polar opposites, and they are. They are part of this paradoxical sliding scale of existence, just like what you were describing about the hill simultaneously being up and down.
0: I saw a uh, video recently of a horse walking and if you look at it long enough, you can see it at one moment walking backwards and in another moment walking forward. And it's left brain, right brain mm-hmm. in many of these cases. I had a Dr. Ian McGilchrist on this program. He's written a book called The Matter with Things, 1,500 pages. He's a professor of humanities who went to medical school and then became a neurologist and started studying the brain brain scans and it's written extensively about bicameralism and that um it's the right brain that's the master and the left brain that is supposed to be its emissary Mm. but we've turned it around we honor the left brain and ignore the conceptual right brain far too often Uh, to our destruction perhaps i mean i think that's I think that's where this bifurcation, this either-or nonsense uh, springs from, the the two hemispheres. And I know stress and anxiety compounds it. Mm -hmm. The more stressed you are, the more likely you are to fall into a survival-based either-or. Are you with me or against me? Republican, Democrat, you know, fascist or socialist kind of a men and women, polarities. I mean, energy and spirit vibrates. It's got a peak and a trough. It's very, very dual. And something we have to struggle with to understand there is a middle element that unifies the, that appearance of opposites. Yes. So, while we still have a couple of minutes, let me ask you about secret societies. What's the deal with the Freemasons? People ask me this all the time. The Rosicrucians, the Knights Templar, uh What's so secret? What, <laughs>
1: well, what, what are they hiding? I think we live in an age of dissemination today. I, I don't think we, we live in an age that's well-suited to secrecy. I think many of these groups, uh, well, certainly the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, the Illuminati, which was kind of a renegade Freemasonic order, a lot of these groups grew out of the aftermath of a backlash against some of the occult studies that were in vogue during the Renaissance. Um, after the death of Queen Elizabeth, after, uh, the Western world entered the early, say the early 1600s, uh, There was the advent of what we call the Thirty Years' War, which tore apart Central Europe between 1618 and 1648. There were many, many causes for it, but one of the causes was a kind of a backlash against some of the occult spirituality that was running through Europe, particularly Central Europe at that time. And to continue some of these studies, I think it was necessary for certain groups of seekers to form into what came to be known as secret societies, Rosicrucianism, the Freemasonry, Freemasonry in particular. I think if one traces the history of these groups as they emerged as above ground entities, most of the time, most of the references, the earliest, unmistakably clear references that we have in letters, articles, few bits and pieces of record keeping here and there is that these groups started to emerge just after the crest of the the 1600s as the backlash grew and it could be extremely bruising and dangerous against some of the occult experimentation of the renaissance and I think some of these voices that formed into these groups um, in some cases they were actual fraternities like Freemasonry continues to today in some cases they might have just been thought movements without an actual membership base like the Rosicrucians I suspect. Uh, in some cases, they existed for a certain brief period of time, like the Illuminati got wiped out in a series of very brutal laws that the uh, aristocratic uh, state apparatus of Bavaria passed against the Illuminati and other secret or revolutionary societies. These groups existed, in, and in the case of Freemasonry, persisted, I think probably growing out of the most radical edge of thought and occult experimentation in the Renaissance, and they needed to go underground because they were... They were endangered uh, when the church state compact, the aristocratic and clerical compact began to invade against occult experimentation, religious liberalism, political radicalism. Some of the people who were in those crosshairs uh, went underground. And that's what gave us, I believe, some of these secret societies. I guess my understanding
0: of why they're secret goes beyond perhaps fearing persecution. And uh, I mean, the uh, the the Templars were slaughtered. Yes, you know we could talk about uh, witches being hanged and drowned and uh, religious persecution, the Inquisition. Uh, yeah, you're a Christian, but you're not my kind of Christian, so I'm going to behead you on the spot. Uh, it's pretty pretty grisly. So beyond just not wanting to be murdered or or persecuted. I think there must be a concern about the metaphors of these occult societies becoming rigid dogma, the way religion Mm -hmm. tends to do, to take what is really poetic and try to turn it into something Mm -hmm. mechanical or or even to reduce the spiritual world to some Cartesian machine. And they want, you know, they're saying, no, this is not just a matter of worship and fellowship. You have Mm -hmm. to study this Mm -hmm. stuff to understand the symbols that we're offering you as a way to deepen your understanding and your practice. Yeah,
1: I do. I think that we human beings tend towards rulemaking. We tend towards building fences. We tend towards uh, defining what is and what isn't pious, orthodox, or correct. And I have to watch that in myself. I have to watch that in terms of the... Alternative spiritual culture that, that, that I feel very attached to, that, that, that part of the religious culture that goes outside of traditionally recognized doctrine. We are every bit as much in danger of making our own set of rules and what's right and what's wrong. And you need to look no further than social media. You know, you'll, sign, you'll find people on social media who think of themselves as being very heterodox, radically liberal, who will say things like, well, the only way to know God is fill in the blank. Or say, well, I study Kabbalah, so I know how the invisible world works. You know, without realizing that we're all in danger of becoming sort of technicians. We master a certain, a certain rule book, and we're certain that that's the ultimate.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of I talk to God in non-religious philosophy. A
1: heavy amount. And I really yeah. have to watch that in myself, yeah. because it's very, very easy to get into that mindset that I know how it works. I've studied this, or I had inexperience, or this experience that experience and then we always want to show them to people like we're trotting out our vacation photos and they've been on vacation too you know (laughs) they might not want to see my photos
0: Mitch it's such a joy to reconnect with you and uh, I know people are just eating up what, what you're saying here You've got a, uh, how many books? Six, Quite eight. A few, many
1: books have you written? <laughs> uh, maybe a few multiples of that at this point. Um, but I do, I have a book coming out in the month of July, which is very personally special to me, called Daydream Believer. And that is my best effort to wrestle with some of these ideas that you and I have been talking about, about mind metaphysics and thought causation.
0: Wasn't that a monkey's tune, Daydream?
1: Yes, it was. And the monkeys figure into the book. They make a more than fleeting appearance in the book. And I talk about, what they personally meant to me and uh, my contact with some members of the band. Daydream believer. So are you saying that it'll be out in July? That's out in July and it's up for pre-order right now. And uh, do you have a website? You must have a website. Oh, I do. It's Mitch Horowitz.com. Um, and at, at Mitch Horowitz.com, there's lectures, articles, um, links, all kinds of things. And I'm um, on social media at Mitch Horowitz on Twitter and at Mitch Horowitz 23 on Instagram. Twenty-three. Yes, sir. It's a good number for you. Interesting number,
0: right. Robert Anton Wilson talks about the number twenty-three. Yeah. I read his book. I'm trying to remember the name of it, the Illuminati something or other. Oh, right, right. Sure. And he talks about the number twenty-three. Yeah. I was backpacking and I had to find a new home, a new rental, as soon as I came back to the city. And after reading that book, I ended up living at 12323. <laughs> and the zip code was 90023. I dig it. <sighs> and so when I interviewed Robert a couple of years later, this was in the 80s, I said, So what's the deal with 23? What? And he's he was a hilarious guy. And, he, and what it came down to was it could have been any number. I just got that number in my head. And. And magnetized it. So um, I miss some of these old guys. They had such a deep understanding of spirituality from a metaphysical and, and non-religious point of view, and, and such a great sense of humor. They reminded me of court jesters. Timothy, Timothy Leary, also. he was just a goofy, silly, fun-loving kid. Yeah, who never never grew up.
1: Yeah, you know. I miss them. They were well-rounded. They were well-read. And they drank from many different wells. Indeed. Mitch Horowitz, my
0: guest. Mitch, thank you, man. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Stay with us. I have a few more comments for you. Before the top of the hour, you're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK in Los Angeles.
1: The best things in life are free, and yet they say no one rides for free. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance and KPFK Radio remains vigilant thanks to donations from listeners appreciative of KPFK's importance presenting conversations and considerations on our changing world. KPFK needs your support to keep moving these discussions forward. Please visit kpfk.org and make your donation of $50, $100, or any amount of $25 or more to become a KPFK member in solidarity with free thinking and freewheeling radio. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining KPFK Los Angeles for the ride.
0: Hey, thanks for sticking around. This is KPFK in Los Angeles. I'm Michael Benner, and you're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, a program about consciousness and awareness. And again, thanks to our guest today, Mitch Horowitz. I thought that was a, a great interview. Can't imagine anywhere else that you would hear a show like this on uh, NPR. I, I don't think so. <laughs> Certainly on commercial radio. No, <laughs> that's not going to happen. And you know that. That's why you listen to this radio station. But we need your support. This is the May Fund Drive. And so this is one of those months that we set aside a few times a year to focus on fundraising. So I got, what, six or seven minutes remaining here. And uh, so I'm going to make my best appeal to you to step up to make at least a pledge that you can then fulfill with your donation, your contribution to this radio station. Now, I'd like to address the objections that we often hear. The first one is, I don't have the money. Even if people don't say it out loud, they whisper it under their breath, or you're thinking it, you know, I'm uh, overworked and underpaid, I'm out of work, I'm a student, I'm out of fixed income. Uh, the economy sucks, and who do you think I am? A billionaire? I don't have, I don't have that kind of money. Well, I did a little research about this recently. I wanted to find out who's giving, on a per capita basis, the most money to charity. And you know what I found? It's poor people. They give a larger percentage of their income to nonprofits and charities than the middle class or the rich. Actually, the rich give the least amount of their income, by far, on a per capita basis to nonprofits and charity. And so, at first blush, you might say, well, that's sort of surprising that poor people would give a larger percentage of their income to charities like KPFK or Community Food Bank or uh, actually so many great charities, you know, Save the Whales, Save the Redwoods. Uh save the farm animals. There's it just goes, save the oceans. It just goes on and on and on. I think broadcasting, community radio, is very, very special and merits your support because the payback is so obvious. That's what I like about Sustainer's Circle. You can contribute just a little bit each month. You know, as little as five or ten dollars a month, which anyone can afford that. That sort of blows your cover on the excuse that you can't afford it. You know, anybody can come up with 5 or $10 a month. You won't even miss it. And that's a nice contribution that adds up over the year. It's $10 a month is a lot easier than coming up with $120 once a year. And uh, there's some really nice premiums and thank you gifts that go along with this. You can search the website at kpfk.org and see what you qualify for, really nice stuff. But um, that's not the best reason, or for most people, not the primary reason they're making a contribution to this radio station. You're not buying thank you gifts, after all. But if you have that objection in your head that somehow you can't afford it, consider This little statistic that I've come up with, if you don't believe me, you can do what I did. You can, you can Google it, but, uh, it makes sense. The more I thought about it, the more sense it made because people who are living in, uh, poverty or near poverty, people that are living like the majority of Americans really paycheck to paycheck, uh, they understand what it's like, they can empathize with what it's like for people to rely on charities. Now, we're not feeding people food, we're feeding people information, information they can't get anywhere else. Uh, You could say KPFK is the foundation of a nutritious diet of news and no BS information. That you're not going to get elsewhere. You won't find it on social media. And even if you did, you wouldn't be able to trust it. You'd have to verify it with two or three other sources. Social media is not journalism. But most broadcast news comes through commercial media. So they're limited in what they're able to say. They can't give you the full story or a, a complete overview or alternatives to either or thinking, this or that, Republican or Democrat. That's, that's about it. You don't often hear labor leaders or sociologists, social scientists. Uh, you don't hear poets on the, uh, on the news commenting or other deep thinkers, marginalized people. Where do you go to get that? KPFK. Where else are you going to go to get that? So this station merits your support. We need your support. Think of it as a nutritious diet of factual, albeit diverse, all progressive and factual information. We're not spinning conspiracy theories here. And because it's diverse, if you don't care for this particular program or that particular show, check out the program guide at kpfk.org. There's something for everybody here. More than 100 programs, different shows we do every week on this radio station, every single one of them commercial-free. And that's more than the benefit of not having to listen to commercials. It's also knowing that hosts like me don't have to worry about editorial control by big corporations. You don't have to be concerned that someone's going to tell us what to say, what not to say, how to say it. And you better not say that. I've told the stories here of experiences I've had in commercial radio as a young man where I was told that I could not say this. And I better say this. And I want you to sound like everybody else. I don't want you to tell the whole truth and the full truth. I want you to sound like every other radio station in town. Man, that's what I love about KPFK. After 30 years of commercial radio. I spent 20 years at KPFK. More than that, actually. For that very reason. I love the freedom. So I want you to support what supports you. Community radio. KPFK. For all of Southern California and indeed the world. You could call the phone room at 818-985-5735. In my opinion, it's best to go to the website. Boy, you'll... Zoom through it in three minutes. You'll make a donation. And uh, you can look over those thank you gifts while you're there, too. We'd really appreciate it. Even, you know, $25 a year is enough to make you a member, a voting member of KPFK. So whatever you contribute matters. It counts. It adds up. Join us now, won't you? At 818-985-5735. Or better yet kpfk.org right look for support kpfk and uh, sustainer circle the website's very accessible very open and and easy to access kpfk.org thanks for listening check out the podcast at theagelesswisdom.com we're also on youtube find out more about me at michaelbenner.com Thanks to my producer, Mark Brisky, and as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK.